0: All right, friends, let's flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Plan is to finish off the letter here. It worked out in first service, so hopefully we can do it twice in a row. So as we've been looking through these two letters to Corinth, And finishing this particular one, we've seen Paul's heart through the whole thing, right? He talks about times where he uh, wept when he handed off the letter because he knew that the letters he was sending would hurt them. We know this is, even though it's our 2 Corinthians, we know it's at least the third letter because he says in 1 Corinthians 6, this is now the second time I'm writing to you. So we know that he's written to them three times. He, I should say first that he established the church. He was there for 18 months. He's written to them three times. He's had two visits to them. We know the second visit was incredibly painful. Why do we know that? Because he said so. He, said that, he says, I didn't come and visit you again. In 2 Corinthians, he says, I didn't come to visit you again because that last, that last visit was so painful. And I wanted to wait and to see what God was going to do in your midst. And then with the last few weeks we've been looking at, he says multiple times, I'm going to speak as a fool. And as he begins to speak as a fool, he begins to boast as the other false apostles are boasting. And Except in his boasting, it's much different than many false teachers' boasting. He wasn't boasting in what a great uh, speaker he was. In fact, remember two weeks ago, he says, you say I'm not a good speaker. And he says, be that as as it may, I still have uh, knowledge to share. So Paul acknowledges that he wasn't a trained speaker, a trained orator, which had incredible... Uh, esteemed to it in the Greek and in the Roman world, right? Uh, but Paul lays out for them, instead of, hey, look at my personal jet, look at the size of my churches, hey, look at all this money I have, or whatever, he says, I want you to look at how much I've suffered, right? He says, uh, I spent three nights in the, in the ocean, just bobbing there, lost at sea. He said, that happened twice to me. He says, I've been beaten so many times, I can't count. He says, I've been three times, I've been given 39 lashes by the Jews. And he goes on and on and on. And the point that he's making is, these things that I did, they were because I love you. And I cared about you. And I had to do those things to be able to reach you, to visit you, to send these letters and these different things. So it's a much different vibe than how you might imagine many uh, messengers of the gospel boasting, as it were. And he, over and over again, he shared with them, I love you, I care about you, I, I want to invest in you, and, and all of our motivation is in this way. And for the last couple of chapters, he uses uh, even a point, sarcastic and ironic language, where he, remember, if you remember the point, he, when he over and over again shows, I didn't take any money from you. But his commentary is, he says, I robbed the churches of Macedonia so that you wouldn't have to pay me anything. And remember, the the churches of Macedonia, so that would be northern, modern Greece today, they were very poor. And Achaia, uh, southern Greece, where uh, Corinth is, was very rich. So he uses some ironic language, and he says, My crime was that I robbed Macedonian churches so that I could be among you and not have to take any money from you. And he says, And I'll never take anything from you, because I want you to know that I'm only here for the sake of the gospel. So as we kind of finish up, it was a tough break in the passage last week because this continues in the same vein as what we covered last week. And then we kind of have a, uh, the, the last chapter, which would be kind of a summary and some goodbyes. And that's what we'll cover today. Uh, for context's sake, I'm going to start reading in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 14, uh, so we get our context again from last week. Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians 12, verse 14. Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for, you, uh, spend for you everything that I have, and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? We did not walk in this, excuse me, did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? And so you see this heart, right? And this is where we focused on last week, where verse 15. He says, so I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well the difficulty in verses like this is that that's a pretty tall order, isn't it? Very commanding thing to say. Just to think through, to think through that for a second. Where he says to the Corinthians, who are arguing with him, who uh, and, and we're talking as a whole, right? I mean, obviously there were people that were, were walking with the Lord. We're not saying that nobody was. But think about, in general, it's a very problematic church. They're embracing a lot of weird stuff at their church you have a you have a a basically a a stepson who has an open sexual relationship with his stepmother and the church knows about it and and the elders are saying hey it's okay right you have people suing each other you have people getting drunk during the communion or right before the communion time and then taking communion you have a, a wildly dysfunctional church you have Paul writing to them, wanting to encourage them and, and, and wanting them to repent and do these things. You have some that are, are, are latching on that, some that are rejecting that. Some that are making accusations. Remember, they accuse him of being very unimpressive in person, but, but wildly aggressive in his letters. They accuse him of being a poor speaker. They make all these personal assaults on him. They make personal assaults on his doctrine. In other words, there's a lot of conflict there. So Paul's response to the conflict of that church is, I will give everything that I am and have to make sure that you're taken care of. Right? This is wildly different from the world, isn't it? Because the world just instantly says, and oftentimes we do, I'm done with you. You're cut off. You've treated me poorly. You've, you, know, you won't reconcile. I'm done. And, and there's a time for that. So I'm not saying there's never a time to be done with someone in your life. But the point is that Paul, amidst all this, his heart is, I will spend it all to see you succeed. And the difficulty of that is when we process that as human beings, we say, how does that apply to my life? Does that mean that I, That I, is that the life I'm called to? And the difficult answer is yes. It's a different context than Paul, Right? we're probably not going to write a bunch of letters to new churches that will be saved for the next 2,000 years. Right? We're probably not going to start a bunch of churches, and, and the, the chances of us being shipwrecked of, multiple times in the course of our life, trying to get around the Mediterranean, pretty low. For right now, the, the chances of us being caned publicly for our faith, pretty low. Could it get there? Sure it could. We'd be fools to think it couldn't. But it, we probably are not going to be called to that. But you know what we are called to? We're called to love one another. right? We're called to meet together, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, we're told in Hebrews. And we're called to love one another. So the question becomes, how do I get into a a point in my life, in my heart, where I'm not faking this idea? Because for many of us, that's what we end up doing, myself included. We can come to a place where we fake it. We tell ourselves, oh, I'd spend everything for my church. or oh, I'd spend everything for the sake of the kingdom of God. Or we come to a place where we go, this is too overwhelming. I could never do that. I don't even know how to include that in my life. I don't know what that would look like in my life. Or we can come to a place of obstinance. It's like, there's no way I want to do that. Are you kidding me? Do you know the people at my church? <laughs> there's just no way I'd want to do that. And so how do we get there? And we talked last week, it's 1 John, right? It's love, experiencing God's love and his acceptance in my life, not acceptance of my sin, nobody panic, but his acceptance of me as a, as a human being through the, through the sacrifice that Jesus made, the more I experience that and I experience the forgiveness and the love and all those things, then that does something, it changes me, doesn't it? Meanwhile, I have the Spirit of God flowing through me. And what does the Bible say the Spirit of God is doing in our sufferings? It's shedding abroad the love of God, right, from Romans 5. So as I'm going through the difficult experiences, as I'm trying to figure this crazy life out and what Christianity means and all these things, this is where we ought to end up. It's a journey, though, right? It's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment journey where we're offered opportunities all the time, as Jesus put it, put it, to die to ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. And this is the big mystery of Christianity, is that you know, the interesting thing about trust, and I shared this last week, if you don't have trust or faith, then all you can do is risk, right? Because if I don't trust God in certain areas of my life, I don't try to lie and say, oh, I trust God. No, I have to take risks. And I have to let God work. And once I take a risk and I find Him faithful, because I always will, then I develop trust. I develop... The faith grows in my heart, right? So if I'm going to come to a place where I can come in the door on Sunday morning in whatever calling or capacity or, or way that God's calling me to, I can say, you know what? I would spend everything for these people here or those people out there or whatever, whatever it might be. It's going to come because we know the love of God in our lives, We've taken risks to let him come through for us in our lives. We've experienced his faithfulness in our lives, and now we're able to extend that to other people, right? So that's what Paul is talking about here. And he says, he gets to this point, and that's can you imagine walking into a room? And I'm not saying it's not here, I don't know your hearts, but can you imagine if your house, everybody in your house was this way? Everybody at your school, your job, everybody in your family, everywhere you went, they, people just looked at it, including ourselves, and we said, I would give everything. To see you content with God. I give everything. Imagine if you, a whole room full of people. That was our attitude. Imagine all the things that wouldn't matter anymore. All the things that wouldn't bother us anymore. Imagine the safety and the fellowship and the inclusion that we would feel amongst each other. Rather than having to isolate because if you knew the real me, you wouldn't have fellowship with me. It's a lonely place. So this, this little statement that Paul makes... I don't want to, you know, make a mountain out of a molehill, but I think it's, it's profound and it's wonderful. And honestly, I think it's what every single one of us is looking for. And it's supposed to be found here, right, in our hearts and in others. So as we move on today in verse 19, he says, Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends... Is for your strengthening. So in the verse 19, he's going to continue in this vein and he makes the point: he says, Do you think <laughs> that everything we've been doing, the visits, the letters, Titus coming to you, this other unnamed brother coming to you, do you think that everything we've been doing is for our own uh, stature to defend ourselves? He says, is that why you think I've written you? Is that why you think I'm sending these guys to you? And and why would you have to challenge that? Because that can be a really normal motivation for us, right? A normal motivation can be so that we come out looking the best. So they may think like, oh, he's just trying to defend himself so he can have clout, so he can walk into the church at Corinth and everybody goes, oh, there's Paul, you know, or whatever. But he says, no, he goes, this is, has nothing to do with why we're, we're talking to you. It has nothing to do with the letters or any of these ideas. He said, instead, he says this, and, then, and this is a, an important little phrase too. He says, we've been speaking in the sight of God. So in, in other words, what we're sharing with you, this, God sees it. He knows what we're saying. It's correct. As those in Christ, we're sharing it as people who are uh, saved individuals, that were in Christ, our sins are forgiven, and we're willing to walk with Christ. And he says, in everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. Number one, this is very Jesus-esque, isn't it? What did Jesus call Judas when Judas came up to him? I'm sure you guys know this. What did he call him? Friend. Was that Jesus trying to come up with something witty to be recorded by John and the fellas? Did he think as he he saw Judas coming forward, was he like, enemy, loser, uh, friend? I'll go with friend, because that'll sound poetic 2,000 years from now when people are discussing this. Or was Jesus actually a friend to Judas? Judas wasn't a friend to Jesus, but Jesus was still a friend to Judas. So when Jesus looks at Judas and he calls him friend, that's not a lie. It's not an exaggeration. It's him looking at the one who would betray him and say, "I'm not against you. You're not my enemy." And so Paul, who clearly has enemies in Corinth, he reiterates this ideology and he says, or this this uh, this uh, sentiment, and he says, "Dear friends," he calls them dear friends. Do we look at other people? That don't share our values or ideas, or we look at other Christians that maybe worship differently than we do, or do we look at them and say, Dear friends, I personally am probably not going to run up and down and wave a flag. But you know what? God bless the person in the appropriate time and manner that feels the freedom to be so excited about Jesus, they want to wave a flag. Why would I put that down? Why would I say, I mean, we wave our country's flag, it's just a country. All right, we wave sports teams' flags. We wave all sorts of flags. So why would we have any criticism for someone who's so amped about Jesus they want to wave a flag? Except if you did it here, it would be too distracting. <laughs> but do, you, do you see what I'm saying? Do we look at all these different... It's dear friends, Yeah, I know you don't like me. I know you've insulted me. I know that you have an issue. But you're my dear friend. I don't have anything against you. I've forgiven you. And and I want great things for you. Because that's his motivation. He goes, everything we've been doing, it has nothing to do with defending ourselves. It doesn't have to do with our uh, our insecurity or our need to be validated. My insecurity and my validation is in Christ, Paul would say. And so at the end of the day, he's just making a point to them. Everything we've done is because I want you to be strengthened. That's an important motivation for us too, isn't it? Because we can have a million motivations dealing with sin. We can have a million motivations dealing with people who've insulted us, treated us poorly, called us out. Our motivation can be vengeance. Our motivation can be irritation. You ever been just irritated by someone's sin? Be like, oh, can you please stop? This is ridiculous. And you've ever said something out of that? Did it go well? Was it received well? If they were a gracious person, maybe it was. But for most of us, when someone's just irritated with our sin and they come to us out of irritation and go, I can't believe you always do X. Do we receive it well? Not usually. So but when someone comes to us and says, You know what? I see this is destroying your life. I see how miserable you are. And I want to help you. Can I pray for you? Is there something is there some way I could help you to to walk in the victory that you have in Christ? But there's two very different motivations than you're a loser and I wish you'd stop versus I love you and I want to help you. Two incredible different motivations. And, and typically, in my experience, one ha- they both have fruit and one is good and one is bad. So Paul, is, he's just sharing his heart here and it's a wonderful heart. And he says, verse 20, he says, For I'm afraid that when I come, I may not, be found, uh, I might not find you as I want you to be and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, uh, arrogance, and disorder. So Paul comes to them and he says, look, and this is an interesting statement. He says, I'm afraid that when I come, I'm not going to find you how you should be. Again, we already know his motivation, right? His motivation is not uh, anger, it's not justice, it's not any of those things. His motivation is, I want you to walk with Jesus, right? So we just summarize two letters I want you to walk with Jesus. And so he says, I'm afraid that when I come there, because he's going to ramp up some of this rhetoric, actually. He says, I'm afraid when I come there, you're not going to be who I want you to be. You're not going to be people that are just loving Jesus and walking with Jesus and repenting from sin. And he says, and I'm afraid when that happens that I'm not going to be who you want me to be. The point that he's making is, if I come there and you guys are still acting this way, you're not going to like who I am. Because he's going to go in right now and he's going to talk about exercising his authority. Now, again, he says very clearly in chapter 13, he says, My authority was given to me by God to build you up and not to tear you down. So in no place in this is that Paul, like, you know, like it's like he's, you know, Doc Holliday and this is the OK Corral. And he's like going to, you know, quick draw and start whooping people or something. That's that's not the idea. The idea is that God has given him a set authority as an apostle and if there's a continued rebellion against God in this church, he's going to come and he's going to start booting people. But his heart is one of love and care. So he just makes the statement, I don't want to come to you in this manner. And you don't want me to come in this manner. But I don't want to show up and see you in all, of, in all, all the wickedness and the difficulty. And you look at these sins. These are miserable sins. Miserable. He says, I fear that there may be discord. Discord is this is the idea of that there's strife, that there's tension. You ever, you ever been in a, in a in a situation in church or home or wherever, and there's tension between you and another a person? What do we do? We avoid them, right? We like we see the person we have tension with at the coffee, and we're like, oh, I'll stay in the foyer for a few minutes, right? Then we kind of hang out. We do, like, are they out of the why aren't they out of the coffee yet? What's happening, right? That's what tension does. You have some little sort of dust up in the kitchen. Someone uses too much cheese, right? We, you make a joke. We've had that. We've had that here. Both the cheeser and the cheesy are gone. But I'm just using a real example. We had a couple ladies years and years ago that one was upset about how much cheese was being used on the enchiladas. And one lady said, well, this is how much cheese. I think people like cheese. And clearly she was inspired by God in saying that. <laughs> and the other lady said, I don't think they want that much cheese. And you know what happened? One of them left the church. Right? Because we, we are like that. They're not like, we are like that. Right? I know that's, that's too much cheese. I'm out. Right? So the point is this, right? Discord destroys churches. But it doesn't have to, right? When our motivation's in the right place, when our heart's discord doesn't have to exist. Conflict will always exist, right? In other words, disagreements, difficulties, personality clashes, those will always happen because we're here, right? We would have to leave for there to be no conflict here. But how we work through that conflict That's very addressable every moment of every day, right? So Paul says, I'm concerned that when I get there, I'm going to find discord. And, you know, if I can just go on a soapbox here for a second. In the body of Christ, I'm not talking about necessarily individuals. In the body of Christ, gossip and discord blow drunkenness and sex out of the water when it comes to the destruction that can happen in a church. I'm not talking about individual, you know, tanking. I'm saying as far as in a church. And I think it's noteworthy. He says, this is what I'm concerned I'm going to find. Jealousy. That's miserable. To to observe someone who has something that you want and to feel angry about it. That's miserable. Fits of rage. We've all seen or maybe experienced fits of rage. Fits of rage come from a deep-seated, all sorts of senses, really, but it could be injustice, it could be the idea that you just, you know, hate what's happening, but just think of the radical emotion that goes into a fit of rage. And isn't it miserable to carry around that kind of emotion, that kind of sin, that root in your heart? Isn't it miserable to be irritable and to be constantly like, oh, I can't believe that they would, ugh. Right? That's not of Christ. We have to repent of that. We've got to spade, a spade of sin. He goes on from there and he says, selfish ambition. But well, we get twisted with selfish ambition, can't we? We can get just crazy. The things that, you know, it reminds me of uh, where Paul says there in Romans 7. It's actually one of my favorite verses. He says, even when I want to do good, evil is always with me. You ever experienced that? Where you, you want to go do something, and it start, you have the purest intentions, and then something can just creep in there? Did someone see how spiritual I am right there? Did you see me pick up that tissue off the ground? Oh, I don't know what was on that tissue. And I braved it, <laughs> right? Did, did, they, did those people see that? And you could have none of that, right? It just creeps in. It's just our nature, selfish ambition. It's incredible how it can just crop up in our hearts and our lives. So he says, look, we want to deal with that. Slander and gossip. So what's the difference there? Slander is saying something that isn't true about someone. And gossip is saying something that is true about someone. So you're wondering, what's the difference between slander and gossip? And He says, I'm scared that I'm going to come to the church there in Corinth that has all these radical deficiencies and and difficulties and sins that are going on. And he says, I'm concerned that people are going to be smack-talking other people. And I'm concerned that they're going to be telling lies about other people. Now, what is gossip? This is important. Because there's different ideas about gossip. And this is the one I would put forward as the biblical idea. It is not gossip to go to a trusted brother or sister in confidence and to say, I am having trouble with X, Y, or Z. In other words, I'm having a difficulty with this person, and I don't know how to deal with it. Can you help me with that? Or, if you observe something, Uh, I was at, you know, whatever, I was at Friday Night Fellowship, and I saw these two guys that go to our church fist-fighting outside. Right? I don't know what to do about that. That is not gossip. Gossip is when you share something. And you know what? The funny thing is, once we become more self-aware, we already know before it even comes out of our mouth if it's gossip or not. Because it, 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 am I excited to say it? That's the tall tale sign. The tall tale sign of, so, uh, of gossip is if I ever experience a motivation like, ee, you know, hold my beer and watch this, right? That's when you know it's gossip. When you can't wait to tell someone, when you can't wait to, to revel in how lame someone else is compared to ourselves. That's when we know it's gossip. But when we're just struggling and we're saying, I, I have this situation. I don't know how to deal with it. Can you help me with this? That's not gossip. I mean, if you went to 15 people, then I, you could probably make a case for that. But realistically, we typically know before it even comes out of our mouth. And I'll tell you what, nothing destroys a church faster than slander or gossip. In my, in my experience, nothing does. Because as soon as you can't trust the next person, or the person sitting next to you, as soon as you don't feel like they're for you, as soon as you believe that they're against you, there's no reason to come anymore, is there? Because you know that you're not going to be loved, that you're not going to be cared for, and that you can't trust someone else. And so, there's, so we stop coming. So Paul says, look, I'm concerned that when I get there, you're not going to be what I want you to be, and that's going to force me to be what you don't want me to be. Arrogance. You know, arrogance, it's the, it's, the, it's the idea of being puffed up and, and just always just positive, yeah, how, not positive on yourself per se, but just it's the idea of being, having an inflated idea of who you are and then sharing that idea with other people. Right, that's arrogance. And you, you've, I'm sure you've observed it in your own self and you've observed it in other people. And it just stinks to be around. Does anybody here want to raise their hand and say, I love being around arrogant people. It's my favorite, especially if they can tell me how lame I am in the midst of how good they are. This makes me, hmm, oh, it's destructive. And then the last one is, he says "they're uh, disorder. And the idea of disorder is, it's not just like, oh, someone forgot to make the communion. It's the idea of essentially that it's, it's with discord, and it's the idea that, that nothing, nobody's working together. Does that make sense? So it's, it's, everybody's trying to get their agenda done, do their thing, you know, whatever. And, and he says, I'm afraid that's what I'm going to find. He, so he goes on from there, and he says, verse uh, 21, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. So this is an interesting statement where he says here, I'm afraid that when I come again God will humble me before you. He is not saying because of the what's happening in your church, I'm afraid that if I show up God's going to embarrass me in front of you. That's not the idea. The idea is that he wants to go there and just exalt with them. Right? Over and over, he talked about in, the previous, letter, or in the, the previous chapters of this letter, he talked about exalting in God, he talked about rejoicing in God, he talked about boasting in God, all these things. And now he's saying, I'm concerned if I show up and all this stuff is happening that I won't get to boast in these things in God. Instead, I'll be humbled. I'm going to have to become the thing I don't want to become. I'm going to have to act in a way I don't want to have to act. I'm going to have to regulate. And he says, and that's not what I want to happen. He says, I have a great concern that this is where this is going. And he, and he, and then he makes a point about a different kind of sin, different kinds of sin. And he says, I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier. Notice, grieved, not raging, but grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, the sexual sin, and debauchery. Those and three kind of go together. Debauchery is excess. Uh, for example, when he writes to the Ephesians, he says, don't be drunk with wine, which is debauchery. That's just too much. It's just excess. And so he, he talks about impurity, which is the idea of uh, any kind of, well, it's, it, can, it typically refers to sexual activity or sexual thinking or speaking or something like that. Uh, but it can also be uh, anything that is that is not of God, right? Impurity. And then when you have the sexual sin, um, that's the idea. It's, it's all sin that, that includes a sexual component to it. And then debauchery, which is excess. So those are all, those are all sins of appetite, right? Trying to, you have a craving, a, a physical craving, and you're trying to stem that craving by fulfilling it. And Paul says, I'm concerned that when I get there, there's going to be people that are still doing this, and I'm going to have to, to, to speak with them. So in chapter 13 and verse 1, he says this This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So he makes an interesting kind of, um, I wouldn't call it an addition, but a, kind of a, a curve or a, a, a slant on the law, where he's, because he's, uh, this is out of Levitical law, and it's actually reiterated for how the church should operate, that there's not an accusation against an elder without two or three witnesses. And then in, the, in Levitical law, for any kind of judicial issue, uh, there had to be two or three witnesses. In other words, if, you, if only one person came forward and said, I saw that guy picking up sticks on the Sabbath. If there wasn't a second person that confirmed that, then the, then the allegation was just dropped in the Old Testament law. So now Paul's taking that Old Testament law, and he's reiterating, he's making the point that he says, this will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Well, you have Titus, you have this unnamed brother, and you have their third visit now. So he's confirming We're coming again, and this is going to be essentially uh, okay to do. (laughs) That that we have the right to come and make the accusations and to do the the, the church cleanup that we're about to engage in. Verse 2 says this, I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. So remember, he said that the second time was grievous. Remember that? He already said, we didn't come this time, at this time, Because the last visit that we had was very grievous and it hurt you. And so now you know in part we're told why did it hurt them. Because he was there giving them a warning. You guys need to repent. If you don't repent, then there will be consequences. There will be a cleanup. There will be uh, people that are removed from fellowship. So now we know in in, in part what exactly he was talking about. Verse 2, I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while I'm absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. So the, the proof that he's going to give is going to show up with Titus and his other brother, and they're going to remove people from fellowship. Now, this is, these are heavy words. Right? This is maybe hard for us. But if we look at who were these people, these were people... Three letters, at least three letters, two visits, right? And they're refusing to repent. They are people that are continuing in sin that's destroying the body. And so Paul's saying, we're going to come, and not to mention, I should say the false teachers, but he says, we're going to come and we're going to remove them. They're not going to get to go to that church anymore. Now, could Corinth immediately receive them back? Sure they could. But that would be just a new level of rebellion, right, to what Paul's trying to accomplish there through the gospel. So he's making the point to them, and he's saying, I, these people have to be removed, and I will do it if it needs to happen. So then he goes on to the, uh, in verse 4, and he says, "...for to be sure he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him." Yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. There's a lot to be said here, but for time's sake, we're going to keep moving. But he makes this point, and it's kind of an odd point, right? He says, for to be sure, he was crucified in weakness. So he says, Jesus, he goes, yes, Jesus was crucified in weakness. So you go, okay, interesting. What weakness did Jesus have? Yet he lives by God's power. So in his resurrection, he was crucified in weakness, but in his resurrection, he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him. Yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. So Paul is making the point, yes, Jesus was crucified as a man, as a human being. Right? The Bible tells us he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. So Jesus was crucified in that weakness of his flesh, Right? the likeness of sinful flesh. And Paul makes the same point, or, and I should say that, that he now lives by God's power, by resurrection life. He says, likewise, so just like Jesus, we are weak in him. We are human beings and we are weak in Christ. Which might seem like an odd statement because we have all these other promises, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have, you know, in my weakness, then I'm made strong. So we have all these kind of promises. But in this case, Paul says, yes, in this life and in this mode and in this place, like your accusations have said, there is weakness in us. Paul and his fellow, the, the fellows that are with him. He says, but... When we come and we are among you spiritually by the power of Christ, our authority will be powerful. We're going to execute what God has called us to do. We're going there to clean house, as it were. But remember, remember his whole motivation. This is why we never want to lose context when we're going through these passages, right? Because what's Paul's motivation? Love, care, strengthening, right? Years ago, when I worked for a medics ambulance... We went to a car wreck out here by the, uh, it was a head-on collision by the, the uh, tunnel, the Chinook tunnel. And one of the adults in one of the cars was unrestrained. And so it was odd because he didn't get ejected. He actually got stuffed underneath the dash. So it was it really kind of wild because only about this much of him was showing. And the rest was stuffed under the dash. And so what happened to him is if you've ever seen a femur, it's got that big part on the top. It's called the greater trochanter. That snapped off. And his femur went up into the bum muscle. That's the medical term. <laughs> so as you might imagine, he was in pain. So we showed up on scene. Fire was already on scene. And fire's beginning to roll the dash. You know, the jaws of life. They have spreaders and jaws, all sorts of stuff. And they cut the door off, and they're using the, the spreaders. And they, what they do is they call rolling the dash, where they rip the dash off, and they roll it up. Okay, so they're rolling the dash up, and we got a line started on him, and we you know got a monitor on him, and giving him the good stuff, the opiates, so he has a little bit of relief. So then we start to extricate him. We hold his head and do the C spine and the whole line you know you see on TV, and we start to pull him out, and he starts screaming. You know what we did? We kept pulling him out. You know why? Because when we've been a good ambulance crew. If we said, oh, I'm sorry we're hurting you, we're just going to leave you here. We're going to go back to the station because we don't want to cause you any pain. Your morphine should last you about another four hours, and I hope it works out for you. Is that the crew that you want to pull you out of your car? Would you want a doctor that has to set the limb, but when you scream, he goes, oh, never mind, we just won't set it. We'll just let it heal the way it is. No, you'll never be able to close your fist again. No, you'll never be able to bend your elbow or actually scratch your nose with your hand again. But we don't want to cause you pain. Right, so a lot of times we can go like, what's the big deal? Why don't you leave these people alone? Or why, why does Paul have to talk this way? Or why does a church that stuff has to get dealt with? Or well, you know, But there's really like no other context in life where we're really okay with that, is there? And so we have to understand something that, that when Paul's doing this, in, 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 in the vein of Jesus, he's, he's trying to fall in the footsteps of the good physician. There's just times in life where pain is part of it. And, and, and people that love you are going to continue to do things, not in an abusive way, but in a way to help you that may cause pain. And we just have to deal with that. We have to let them, we have to work it out. We have to, we have to be okay with it. Paul is just here willing to help these people right to work it out that's what he's doing and so it comes down to this this in, in our hearts when, when we're in those situations will we let people in our lives help us work things out or will we make will be insistent you can never talk to me you don't have the right to say anything into my life or will we justify it like the world does this is part of the crazy thing of what the world's going through right now and it's crept into this church You don't know what I've been through. So therefore, you can't help me. And when I say that, now I have the right to to act out in whatever way I want. Because nobody can understand me. Because nobody's ever had the exact same scenario as me. And it's just a lie where we stay in this weird victimization. And so here Paul is just saying, I'm going to come there with Titus and the other unnamed brother. The other other brother's like, good, don't say my name. (laughs) (laughs) Shh. The Titus and the unnamed brother, they're showing up there. And he's saying it's going to hurt, but we're going to do it because we care about your church and we want to see great things go through. And would be to God that those would be our motivations, that we love people, that we're willing to engage, not initiate or appreciate, but be involved in conflicts with a humility and a care to say, I'm just here to help. And I see that this is destroying you, and and we'd love to help you with that if we could. That's the part of the calling that we have. So Paul here, he says, look. He says there, uh, sorry, verse 4, he says, For to be sure he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him in our dealing with you. That that Christ-motivated, Christ-empowered ability to help people, even when it hurts. Verse 5, he says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed he goes on from there and he challenges them. And he's calling them essentially to witness to what Christ is telling them. So he says, examine and see if you're in the faith. So remember, they're having this huge dialogue. Multiple visits, multiple letters, all these, this dialogue. Multiple brothers gone down there and visited and talked to them. All these different things. And he's saying, look, examine yourself. You know if you have Christ in you. You know if you have the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And he says, Unless you fail the test. His point is that if you don't have a witness from Christ in your heart or the Holy Spirit, you have failed the test of being in Christ. You need to receive Him. But if you have that Spirit in you, God's Spirit attached to you, however you want to uh, look at it, He says, then you will know that we also are in Christ. That what we're telling you is true, right? Because what is He talking about? He's talking about love, reconciliation, reconciliation. Caring for one another, not drawing attention to ourselves. These are not things that the enemy of our souls advocates for, right? These are things that only Christ advocates for: love and care and peace and forgiveness and these things. So he's saying, see if what, you know, look into yourself, look into the spirit that you know in your heart and your life. Look into the the you know, not, nobody has a Bible yet, right? Not even everybody has these letters yet. Some of the letters haven't even been written yet. You know, we know that mm, about 99 to 100 A.D., the most common thing that a church would have was an Aramaic copy of the four Gospels. That was the most common thing that they had. And actually, you can still get a copy of that same Aramaic Gospel set translated into English, or in Aramaic, if you know Aramaic, today. Unchanged. So just a little side note for you. People are like, the Bible's been translated so many times. It's really, mm, not really. Not really at all, actually. That's not how translation works at all. But all that to say is, that these people, the Spirit's working and moving. They don't have the access that we do to the Bible. They don't have a morning time in the Bible. Nobody has their own private scrolls except for very rich people, right? So we can, we can kind of think to ourselves, like the New Testament, just, just everybody just walked around. Like, essentially Jesus ascended, and then everybody just popped into their hands, and they're like, oh, good. Thank you, Cambridge. No. Right? They don't have this. They don't, in fact, the Bible in every home doesn't happen until like the 1800s, Right? The Gutenberg Press in the 1400s cranked out German Bibles. That's great for like 2 million people at the time. So it's, he's saying, see if you have Christ in you. See if what we're saying is true. You know what we're saying is true because the, the, the topics that we're talking about. So he, he goes on from there. and it, it, This care, I don't know, it's humbling to me. I just think, man, I, I, <laughs> I want to see Christ do that in my own life. He says, verse 5, or I'm sorry, I read that portion. We'll, we'll jump down here. He says, um, he says, when he says here in verse 7, he says, Now we pray to God that you will, uh, you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. So Paul says, look, this is what he started with, right? He started with, do you think that we're defending ourselves to you? And now he's come back around, he's revisiting that, and he's saying, I just want you to do right, right? He was not so that we can look like we did good. This is huge. His motivation for their obedience was not so it would be a credit to his ministry. Does that make sense? His desire for their obedience was so that they would be obedient. So that they would be independently interacting with and enjoying God. And then he goes so far even to say that even if we look like we failed, but you're following God, that's fine with us. Again, that's completely unique to this world, isn't it? It's so easy. We want to wrap it around to ourselves. We want to be like, look at the discipleship that I've wrought by my own hand. You know, I saw a guy the other day wearing a picture, uh, uh, a shirt, and it had a, uh, uh, a picture. It was like a, a shadow picture. I don't know, it was just blank. Uh, I don't know how to describe it. It was just a, a shadow, I guess, an outline. But it was clearly of Spurgeon, because Spurgeon was a rather rotund man with a giant beard. And so that's why I do this. No, I'm But kidding. But so, but he, so I saw this, this. He's wearing this T-shirt. And, and then it says, you know, Sola Scriptura on it, which is part of the solas. And that's fine. We don't have to talk about that right now. But, and, and I just thought to myself, if Spurgeon saw that shirt, I bet he would roll over in his grave. Spurgeon used to smoke cigars on the regular. And he stopped smoking because... He walked into the English, you know, uh, Victorian English version of a convenience store. And he found, uh, he went to go buy the cigars that he always buys. And there was a big sign over there that says, these are the cigars that Spurgeon smokes. (laughs) He stopped smoking on the spot. Because he was just like, I'm not going to have people use my ministry. Because God used Spurgeon for great things, even to this very day. He said, I'm not gonna, people, people are not going to make money off my ministry. They're not, they're not going to use this, the notoriety that I have because of what God has done for this. And so you know, Paul just makes the point, he's like, if we look like morons, but you guys are walking with Jesus, that's a W. That's a win. And what an attitude for us to have, right? It doesn't matter what we look like. It doesn't matter if we fit the bill. I'm not saying we want to look debauched or something like that, but it doesn't, you know, our goal is never for people to go, wow, you're really spiritual. I met some of your disciples, right? God forbid someone ever says that to one of us. So he says, hey, I'm I'm okay if we look lame, but but you're following God. Verse 8, he says this, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. Amen, huh? What a different attitude. I can be weak. I can be going through things. You know, a lot of times when we go through things, we, instead we go, why aren't they going through things? I'm going through this. Why aren't they going through this? They need it more than me. You know, I don't even need this. I'm crazy humble. Just ask me. Right? It's what we... But he says, look, if I have to go through a bunch of stuff, but it means that you're strengthened in the Lord, I'm all in. And again, these are impossible attitudes. That's why we don't see them outside of the church. Because it's only Christ in us. It's only the relationship and the observance and the experience of God's just unfettered love and acceptance of who we are in Christ. That's the only way we can afford it. And just, man, what a thing to strive for. He says, this is why I write these things when I'm absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building up and not not for tearing you down. There again, perfect, perfect. He says, do you know why I'm writing this hard stuff to you? Do you know why I'm saying me and the fellows are showing up and we're cleaning house by the authority of Christ? He goes, so that I don't have to when I show up. And he says, God's giving me this authority. He says, it's not to tear you down. That's so key. We have authority. Every one of us has spheres of authority, don't we? We have spheres of authority at our job. We have spheres of authority in our family, in our home. We have spheres of authority. In other words, we have people that look to us. Every one of us does. And we can use that authority that they've given us because the way they view us to tear them down, Or to to build them up. And, And I'll tell you, like, in a relationship, snide comments, it's garbage, man. It's pompous wickedness when we make snide comments at each other, when we tear each other down. I'm not talking about joking around and having fun, if it's fun for both people. But when we say things to people, oh, really? Oh, really? When, we, when someone shares something and, and, and we, we just kind of go, ah, whatever. Or we make little, you know, this is, this is, I think, one of the big ones that we're tempted for, is, is sarcasm in a sinful way. And, we're, and it's funny because even the Proverbs say, don't make fun of your neighbor and then the next morning tell them that you're kidding. Because we tear each other down that way. And we don't want to do that. In our house, we, it's a, we always say, oh, there's always a little truth in joking. Always a little truth in joking. And we're like, no, really, this time I was really just joking. <laughs> but we want to be careful that we don't say things in jest that we actually mean, and we're just trying to backdoor someone with an insult and a teardown. It's not of Christ. It's of Satan. It's not, the, it's, not the, it's not the big, bad fornicators out there that are destroying the church. It's the people that are backbiting. It's the people that are assaulting, condemning. We just don't want to do those things. Again, I'm not trying to be dramatic or something. Imagine if we were all like this. If we all just chose, you know what? This is what I'm going to be. I'm going to walk into church Sunday morning and I don't know what God has for me. I don't know how it's going to work out. But I'm going to make sure that every single person I do talk to Knows that they're loved. That's what, that's what, that's my goal this morning. I may talk to one person. I may talk to two people. That may only manifest by me saying, "You get coffee first. I'll wait." Whatever it might be. But can you imagine every single one of us? And I'm not saying you guys don't, because I don't meet you all in one day. But if that was the heart, if, if we went to work tomorrow morning, and we said "I don't know who I'm going to meet tomorrow. I don't know what conflict I'm going to get in tomorrow." But doggone it, every single person I talk to is going to know, at least from my actions, that I love them. And that I would spend everything to see them in the kingdom. As we take in from Christ, we're going to be able to give out. He says, I use this authority, and I'm only going to use this authority to build people up. Verse 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss, and all God's people here send their greeting. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so Paul, as he does in many of his letters, he kind of gives like this, this big cloud of application and you'll notice these five things he gives in verse 11, the five things that he points out, they're like the antithesis of what's happening in Corinth, right? Number one, he says rejoice. Now, the word rejoice is an interesting word because it's not just happiness. Part of joy is happiness, but it's from the same word where we get grace. So charis would be grace, right, in, in Greek, coined Greek. And this is charo. So it's just a, a different, little bit different word. But it's, so it's the idea of experiencing And finding my joy in grace, in God's favor for me. Does that make sense? So it's different than just happiness, which would be how usually it's translated blessed, right? In the New Testament, like in Jesus, when he's talking about blessed this or blessed that, that is generally the idea of happiness. You're happy if you're a peacemaker. You're happy if, you know, see what I'm saying? This is Carol, or the idea of we find joy or excitement, exuberance in a happy way, through the fact that God has grace for us. Which is congruent with this whole thing, right? Because the whole idea is that we find the ability and the strength to love others because we've been loved. We find the ability to accept others and forgive others because we've been accepted and loved in Christ. So the first thing he commands them, he says, find joy in grace. Rejoice. And there's just some times in life, right, because... Youth is fleeting, money is fleeting, property is fleeting. Nothing in this entire world is eternal except the souls of human beings. That's it. Everything else burns, decays, and dies. Doesn't mean we don't enjoy things for a time. But so the the idea here is that we can find grace, there's an eternal joy that can occur in knowing Christ. I wish we had more time for that. So from there, he says, strive for full restoration. Now this is translated differently in different uh, translations. It's also translated, put things in order. The idea is to, uh, to complete or to restore things. So what he's communicating to them is basically this. If we could just bring it, deal with stuff. That's what he's... Deal with stuff. Don't let conflicts in your relationships go unresolved. Don't let conflicts... In in your church, go unresolved, right? So we don't seek out conflict, but when we have it, we want to resolve it. Can I give just a just a? This is one of the things that we talk about in our, our premarital stuff, and this is something that I just pass on because some of the best advice I ever got. When you s- sin against someone, do not say I'm sorry. If you spill their drink by accident, tell them you're sorry. Because right? when you say, I'm sorry, what you're communicating is, I wish that hadn't happened. Right, Because there was no moral sin. If you accidentally knock over someone's soda, no moral deficiency has occurred. Right, But if I sin against you, if I treat you poorly, if I speak ill to you, if I neglect you, manipulate you, attack you physically or verbally, if I... If I restrain affection from you, those are things that happen in marriages, like the cold shoulder, we call it. Passive aggressiveness. If we're in a conversation, I let anger get the best of me and I raise my voice or something like that happens. You're not sorry for that. You need to, for the sake of your relationship, you have to own it. You have to ask somebody, please forgive me because I sinned against you. I committed wickedness against you. And you go, why are you making an offender for a word? Only because of this. To have restoration in a relationship, there has to be acknowledgement of sin. If there's not acknowledgement of sin, then you cannot develop trust. In other words, if someone wrongs you in a relationship and you just go, oh, sorry, what's for breakfast? That's not going to develop intimacy, is it? It's going to develop a wall, and it's going to develop a habitual understanding that you don't make good on when you've done wrong. Whereas when there's an acknowledgment, I sinned against you. I said this to you. I tried to manipulate you. I put you down. There is this, there's a trust building. It's the beginning of the building of trust. Because you, there's an acknowledgment, I was in the wrong. And this is another, just a, to just a throw in a pro tip and, you know, you ask and I ask forgiveness for our sin. There's no because. I'm sorry I was rude to you because. No, no, no. Please forgive me I was rude to you because I sinned. Not well, well you were pretty amped and so we both had our part and that may be true. But you're not demanding their forgiveness. Or you're not they're not you know, you're not going to try to make demands or blame them for your sin, I should say. Cuz that's that doesn't build trust, does it? If you're in a relationship and somebody constantly blames, well, I only sin this way because you did this. No, you sin that way because you wanted to, and you decided to act on feelings and thoughts that you were having, and you unleashed them. So, as Christians, we always want to be upfront. I sin against you. One last story. We're out of time. So, I would not consider myself a super spiritual guy. Years ago, when I worked at, uh, in California, I fixed cars before. Somebody asked me last week. Where did you go to, uh, asked me this morning, where did you go to seminary? I am a high school dropout. I fixed cars for 16 years before I did this. So I had this dude named Dennis Dahl. Dennis Dahl was the bane of my existence when I worked for Honda for nine years. Dennis Dahl, he was was kind of an interesting guy because he was uh, an alcoholic and uh, he would just do weird stuff. He'd be like, uh, he, 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 he slouched everywhere. And he drug his feet. And he'd be like, hey, James, clean my stall. And I'd be like, shut up, Dennis. <laughs> Very godly stuff. <laughs> you ever met someone in your life or worked somewhere you're just like, it's not right. I'm not advocating for this. But you're like, I hate that person. That's how I felt about Dennis Dahl. I legit hated him. I was like, die in a fiery test drive, you loser. <laughs> This right? is ugly. It's ugly. I'm not advocating for it. I'm not saying we should walk this way. I'm just saying that this was like this thing in my life. You know, this was, this, I was like, I hated him. And we would, we would talk on a regular basis. And I tell you, there was a span there. We worked together for like five years. And there was a span of like, I don't know, three months. Again, this is not advocacy. It's confession time. I'm going to get a couch. But I was like... I would have to go back to him like every day because he would just do stuff. He, like, he would take my, lung. he would like take a bite of my. Lung. I mean, just, just. I'm gonna have to repent right now. But so, it's, I would. Have, there was like a span of like three months where I had to go back to this guy and be like, "Dude, please forgive me. I'm sorry. I yelled at you. I do not have a right to yell at you. Um, I was wrong, and I misrepresented Christ to you." And burned me side, because I was just like, "You're the loser, and I'm the shop foreman." So I don't. Why do I have to do this? Why does Christianity demand this of me? And it was funny, because when we moved away, I was rolling my toolbox out and into the moving truck. And Dennis, he, he comes literally slouching, dragging his feet outside. And he's like, hey. He goes, you know what? You're like the only real Christian I ever met. And I was so humbled. I'm like, how could you say that, Dennis? I sinned against you like every day. And he was like, because you're the only person I've ever met that acknowledged it. This isn't like a James the hero story. This is a James the loser story. But my point is that when you ask your spouse, your family members, your coworkers, your church goers to forgive you, it's because it gives a testimony through Christ. Again, I hate. I, I'm always tell students, don't tell stories about yourself where you're the hero. I'm not the hero. I'm just making a point that when we ask forgiveness. When we're willing to take that step, it mends things that you could never imagine. And it gives a testimony to Christ that you could never imagine. And we want to be people that are menders, right? We want to be people that own our sin, that confess our sin to one another when it's appropriate, and ask each other to forgive each other because we're building trust, right? We're building trust with our, between spouses. We're building trust between each other. And we're acknowledging that, and, and, and what that does also, the other side of it, is when someone asks you to forgive them, humbles themselves before you, it, it, it helps you to actually forgive them, right? To be like, okay, I forgive you. And I'll have to process this, right? And kind of let it go. And that may be a lifetime type of thing, but it, it, it's incredible the kind of bond it builds in people. So, anyway, what do we do now? Where do we walk with God? And when the Holy Spirit, in when, when our conversations, or, or if we're not finding that we have joy and grace, if we're not finding we're trying to maintain peace, if we're not trying, if we're, if we're finding that we're trying to act out of the flesh, then we're honest. First to God, or maybe first to ourselves. I don't know how that works. First to ourselves, then to God, and then to one another. And I think what we'll find is that the, our fellowship, our peace, our joy, our relationship with God is only going to grow and grow and grow. And, uh, and the more we make those offerings, the more we engage in those things, um, I think the more we're going to find his kingdom coming about in our own lives and in our church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and kindness. And Lord, thank you for this, these letters to Corinth and uh, how the, what a great advisory they are to us. We want to be those that spend our lives for your kingdom's sake. And I pray if there's places where we're reserving our life, where we are insisting on our will, that you would continue to point those, those things out to us. We pray that you would grow our church together. We pray that we would grow together in grace, that we'd grow together in trust, and we'd grow together through your spirit. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would add folks to the church, that people would get saved People will come back to you. We pray, Lord, that this would just be a great place of healing for folks. Thanks for being so kind to us. We really appreciate it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.